Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. Um, you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcasts.com. Um, also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And today with me I have a special guest coming all the way from uh, the UK, uh, Pastor Oliver Almond smith He's an elder at Trinity Grace Church in Ramsbottom, Grand, uh, Greater Manchester, England. Uh, he's a trustee at IRBS Theological Seminary, where Dr. James Renahan um, is head. Also a trustee in Reformation Today magazine, uh, and also on the board at Trinity Pastors College in Nairobi, Kenya. Pastor Oliver, thanks for joining me today. It's good to be with you, Daniel. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit of your background before we dive into our discussion today. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was brought up under the gospel, hearing the gospel, uh, but wasn't converted till I was 17. Quite a dramatic uh, conversion experience when I reached a pretty low point in my life. God was very gracious. I've never had any problem as a result of that, of believing in the sovereignty of God in salvation, because I knew for sure it wasn't my doing. Uh, it was it was all of grace. So praise God for that. And since that time, really, um, almost immediately after my conversion, I was given opportunities to speak and uh, lead young people's meetings and, and even start preaching probably too soon, to be honest, looking back. Um, but yeah, since I was 17, I've been uh, preaching in one form or another through to the present time. Um, I uh, did my degree at Cambridge University where I studied history. I majored in, in Reformation and 17th century history. And then after a time in industry, um, and I still have some involvement in, in secular employment and industry as a director of a company, um, I uh, went into the ministry when I was 27 years old. That was in the church here, uh, just north of Manchester. And we've been here for 20, 23, 24 years now. So uh, we've made a start here by God's grace. I'm married to Alison, uh, married when I was 25. And, um, and we have six children. The Lord has blessed us with six children. And the eldest is 25 and the youngest is 12. And our eldest is uh, due to be married uh, in just a few weeks time. So we're looking forward to that lovely uh, young lady from Scotland, Christian lady. And uh, we're blessed. All five of our older children are all baptized members of the church. So the Lord has been very kind to us and we're very thankful to him for his grace and mercy. Amen. Yeah, there, there definitely is an advantage to growing up in gospel ministry and being surrounded by that. that that's a very similar experience to me as well, um, growing up in the church. Um, but today we're going to be discussing uh, your new book that's coming out from Broken Wharf. Um, Under God, Over the People, The Calling and Accountability of the Civil Government, A Confessional Perspective. So we're going to talk about uh, the role of government and the Christian citizen in relation to the government. Um, as it relates to your book. So what inspired you to to write this book? And was the timing of it coincidental with the uh, the pandemic with COVID going on? Uh, no, there was nothing, <laughs> nothing coincidental uh, <laughs> at all, Daniel, no. So it really came out of a series of studies um, that I took the church through in our confession of faith in the autumn of 2020 at the peak of um, what I refer to really as the as the lockdown uh, crisis. I think it, it's slightly misleading to refer to it as the COVID crisis or the pandemic, uh, not a COVID denier or a denier that there was a pandemic. Obviously, there was, uh, but that the crisis was much bigger than that. It was all connected with the way we responded to it. Um, so at the height of that crisis, uh, we, uh, as a church, uh, studied chapter 24 of the confession. Now, as it happened in our studies through the confession, we, we study it periodically midweek. We'd come to chapter 24 anyway. But I think if we if we hadn't been there, we would have gone there. So, um, yeah. And uh, as a result of those studies, it really got us thinking, really thinking in a way we'd never thought before about our relationship uh, to the civil authorities as a church. I think we thought as individuals before, uh, what would we do if this, what would we do if that? We thought about 
what if our liberties as individual believers were encroached? But I don't think we'd ever really systematically thought through uh, what if the government actually started interfering in what we did and didn't do in our church life, in our church gatherings. And uh, so we looked at the teaching of the Confession of Faith in that particular context. And we started asking questions, having discussions initially as elders uh, and then as a church. So, yes, it was definitely connected with events that were going on around us at the time. Great. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see how you know, with COVID, how that affected church life and how that, I I think, really forced the church to look at itself and say, hey, how are we supposed to act in light of all of these things that are coming out from the state on how we should, you know, whether we wear masks or not, whether we meet or not. Um, I think this book is very timely in answering some of those questions, um, at least in a general principle. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And general principles is what we need, isn't it, Daniel? Because if we think we've got the answer to, let us say, masks or, or um, you know, vaccines, whatever it is, then, of course, <laughs> if we miss out the principle, the next thing that comes along, we, we, we won't have the answer and we'll end up being a bit like a cult. Oh, what are the what are the guys at the top say the answer is? We've really got to get hold of the principles so that we can apply them repeatedly and be prepared next time uh, these kinds of things happen. And and it would seem that the next time is is pretty much upon us already uh, and we might get to that later yeah amen so why is it important for us as christians to understand our relationship to the state yeah well because we are of necessity citizens of two institutions um and both of them are instituted by god of course so the civil authority uh, is instituted by god there's no question about that and is under God, as as the title of the book says. Uh, but also the church, even more, far more importantly, is instituted by God and nobody would question that one. Um, so you've got these two institutions ordained by God, under God's authority, under God's command. And these two institutions uh, of necessity, we have to belong to. You know, we can't be stateless people. We can't just sort of unless you're I suppose unless you're some sort of unique diplomatic status where you where you can be in the air somewhere and not belong to a particular state at, at any one time any Christian under normal circumstances is going to be a citizen of a particular civil state and a citizen of heaven of the church of Jesus Christ so what happens then to uh, our uh, our status as citizens of these two Um, bodies of these two institutions that God has ordained? Um, How do we understand our relationship to these two, particularly when they come in conflict? So if we're hearing exactly the same thing from the civil authority as we're hearing from the church, then I guess we can be flabby, we can be callous and and not think through uh, the relationship. But if, as obviously we're finding very, very increasingly now, Uh, We're hearing two very, very different things from the civil authorities uh, and from uh, the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ in our churches. Then uh, we have to know where we stand and how we work that out. And as we said earlier on, what the principles are that we have to apply. We've got to be really crystal clear here. And it's that crystal clarity that has been lacking. Uh, So in our church Mm -hmm. constitution, we, we have in our constitution that should the civil authority ever command us to do anything opposed to the word of God, of course, we will obey God rather than men. We understood that, but we haven't thought through, hold on, there's a lot of gray area here. There are a lot of principles that need to be worked through and, and we'd had an oversimplistic approach. And so we weren't prepared when the time came. So that, that's why it's so important, Daniel, that we, we think through those issues. Yeah, that's that's very interesting um, because I think we ha- there's a lot of diverse there's different views in the church today that have come about with the Christians' relation to the state and vice versa, and working out like you said, being very clear with what we understand about those principles found in Scripture, 
um, is crucial because it will help us to find those gray areas and resolve them um, because not everything is black and white as it relates to the state. You know, we and I think the UK is similar um, in some sense to our government where we have a democratic system, um, which you didn't necessarily have in Paul's time when he's writing uh, Romans 13. Um, he had a dictatorship at the time. So there's I think there's tension there with um, modern um, governmental systems that might influence how we think about these biblical principles. But, you know, for having those that background with those principles, it can help us to hammer out those implications. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that difference, Daniel, because one of the things I point out in my book is that the authority of our governments, America, Britain, Canada, wherever in the West, do not come because they are duly voted in by the citizenry that is not where they get their authority from Mm. they get their authority from god and equally you know a nero an augustus caesar whoever it was in the time of paul um where did they get their authority from they got it from god so the fact that they were dictators didn't disqualify them from having authority and nor does the the uh, fact that a government is duly elected democratically give it any greater authority no authority comes from god and the civil authorities rightly called um are answerable to god for the authority he has given them and i think that's a really important basic foundational principle to to get hold of amen amen now going back to your book um you really take uh, the stance of the book from, a, you know, it's in the title. It's a confessional perspective. Um, us as Reformed Baptists, especially, and as Reformed in general, why is it important to look at this issue from a confessional perspective? Mm. Yeah, good question, Daniel. I think we need to look at everything from a confessional perspective because the confession lays out it in a systematic, clear, and succinct way, a way that's accessible to everyone. You know, some massive tome of uh, systematic theology like Herman Bavinck or something like that is not accessible to everybody, is it? But here we have our confession of faith. Um, it, it's it's 31 very short chapters. Mm-hmm. I've counted the number of paragraphs, but I don't know, two, 300 paragraphs, something like that. No, no, no great length. And it's accessible to everyone. And it covers uh, systematically everything that we believe about the Bible. Uh, And it also gives us more than that. It gives us a way of reading the Bible so that when we want to come to scripture and ask a particular question, in this instance, what is the relationship between the the church and the civil authority? uh, We have a way of answering that question, a structure. And you'll notice in the book that I don't begin uh, by diving into chapter 24. I begin by laying chapter 24 of the confession, which is uh, of the civil magistrate in its context, in in the whole system of theology as we find it in the Second London Confession. So we see where it sits, particularly it sits in that section dealing with um, how we are to live as Christians in this age and particularly the whole doctrine of Christian liberty how we can be free to serve God, free to obey God, free to live to the glory of God in this age and generation. And it it goes through systematically all the areas of Christian living and how we relate uh, the teaching of scripture to each aspect. So when you come to uh, chapter 24 and, and the civil authorities, you've got your context, you've got your foundation laid, you know where you stand. And you can then with confidence say, yes, this is what the scripture teaches. Furthermore, that structure has come not as a result of one man uh, opening his Bible at one stage in church history. You know, let's say it's uh, March the 12th, 2022 in Britain or America and say, "Okay, what does the Bible say about the civil authority and working it all out from scratch for himself? No, what we have here in our confession of faith is the fruit of literally centuries of thought about these things, and particularly that period in the 16th century and the 17th century when these things were being debated and discussed and hammered out on the anvil of controversy and persecution. And uh, and really what we believe we have in the Second London of 1677 is, is the high watermark 
of, of that theological um, uh, development and uh, clarification. And so to go back uh, to that, because we believe that from then on, sadly, there was a falling away, uh, gives us a real solid position uh, from which to understand what the Bible teaches on these things. And I think it's helpful in your book that you do bring out that context, because I think we tend to read the confession in a very segmented way, mm. instead of seeing it as actually flowing in a systematic approach. It is really a systematic theology, and it flows like that. And yeah, reading it in absolutely. that way, I think, helps us to understand uh, where they're coming from on different issues. Yeah, yeah. When I first heard uh, Dr. Renahan teaching his symbolics class, which is uh, an exposition of the confession in its historical context, he, he used the phrase, and I've heard him use it many times, we need to read the confession sideways. So wherever you dive in, if it's chapter 24, you want to know, well, what's gone before and what's coming after? Because there, there will be relevance from chapter one right through to chapter 31 and everything in between as you go through chapter 24. And, and that's and because it is so succinct, because it is so clear, it means it's accessible to us. As I say, in a way that giving giving a Christian this and saying, off you go, work it out for yourself. It's just it's not impossible, but it's exceedingly difficult and you're very likely to go astray. Whereas with our confession, we, we have the help that we need. So what we love to say is read, read your Bible with your confession. This isn't above this or under this or anything. This alone has authority. Absolutely. Chapter Amen. one of the confession teaches us that. But this is going to help you understand this. And that's why having a confessional perspective is so helpful to us. Amen. Amen. All right. In the book, you kind of lay out this this dual role, the kind of the role of the state and then the role of the citizen. Um, you point out that the government is to submit to God and then the citizen, it, by implication, I guess, is to submit to the state. Why is keeping this these role uh, in their proper places, I guess, or understanding these roles properly important as we talk about government? Yeah. So this is where looking at the confession and looking at the, the whole teaching of Scripture in relation to our subject becomes important. So we ask ourselves, why should anyone submit to any authority? Why? And the answer is because the authority has been ordained by God. If the authority hasn't been ordained by God, then we've no business submitting to that authority. That's why understanding what authority God has put in place is so important. And then we, we also understand that as it relates to the two tables of the law. I think this is something we might come back to later. The first table of all the first four commandments in terms of my direct response to God, my communion with God, my worship of God and my service of God. And then commandments five to ten concerning my relations with one another. But we must surely notice that the fifth commandment, which is at the top of the second table, marries up with the first commandment at the top of the first table. So where does all authority come from? It comes from God. First commandment. Um, submit to God only. God is your God. There is one God and, and, and you must worship him only. And then why do we have authority in the family and authority more generally in other realms? It is because family authority, church authority, civil authority is under God. We submit to the authority because it's been appointed by God. So think about the family. Why does a child to submit to the parent? Because, not because the parent has any inherent or absolute right, but because their authority has been given by God. Now, this will help the authority massively. You know, when a parent is lashing out at a child and spanking it across its backside just because... I am annoyed with you. And what right do you have to defy me? Whack. Immediately, the Christian parents should think that is sinful. It's not just unfortunate or maybe slightly misguided. It's downright sinful because you do not have the authority to impose your will on your child. The only authority you have is to bring your child under the authority of God under the authority of God himself. So I act with authority under God. And that's, so it helps the person with the authority. And that really comes out in uh, chapter four, doesn't it? The godly magistrate. But it also then helps the person under authority. 
because as the person under authority, chapter five, the godly citizen looks up to the magistrate. The godly citizen says, OK, I'm submitting to the magistrate for God's sake. Yeah, we see this in Colossians three very clearly, don't we, in terms of the servant master relationship in the workplace. You, you submit to the master. Why? Not because the master is good. But because the master has been given authority by God. And so whether the master is good or evil, you submit to his authority as ordained by God. But that also then draws the boundary. And this is where looking at chapter 24 of the confession in the context of chapter 21 and following freedom and boundaries, Christian liberty, what John Owen called the second principle of the Reformation, Christian liberty. So I am free then as a citizen to submit myself to the authority of the civil government. Because the authority has been appointed by God and by the same token, not only am I free to. And as we see in chapter five of the book, I am required to render disobedience to that civil authority when they command me against God's command. And and that's really key. It's not a defiance of authority. That's why we use the word civil disobedience. It's not a call to rebellion, to overthrow the authority. That's not my job. I'm a citizen under the authority, but it it could well be my job to say, no, you've overreached here. You've stretched too far here or you've commanded something that is wicked here. And I will not obey because the only reason I obey you is because God has given you authority. You don't have authority to command that. Amen. Yeah, it's like we have to go back to the source of where that authority comes from in order to understand the authority itself. If we don't have a proper understanding of why is government able to do what it does, well, it's because God has commanded to do so. Maybe we'll have more respect for our governing authorities if we have that mindset. Absolutely, yeah. And I think even for myself throughout the, the lockdown periods, I became so frustrated Uh, with the civil authorities that I was in danger of sinning myself because God has given them an authority to make, say, public health judgments and decisions about things like that. And uh, so, okay, they may overreach in different places and we'll come to that, I'm sure. But they have the right to do that. And the fact that I disagree with them doesn't mean I have the right to disobey them. Same with regards to taxation. I may disagree with them about their taxation policy, but I don't have the right to break the law because God has given them that authority. So it's really important to to grasp that, that God given authority of of the civil civil government. Amen. Amen. So I guess kind of continuing along the lines of the civil government, how is the state to submit to God? The state has got to submit to God by understanding, first of all, that its authority comes from God. And this is where so many magistrates go wrong. One of the great problems of democracy is that the democratically elected leader thinks that his authority comes from the people. And so he's trying to please the people. Now, that's a fool's errand because, you know, as as somebody once says, you can't please all of the people all of the time. Um, and, and it seems to me that democratic leaders are constantly trying to do this because they've got their eye on the next election and, and winning support. But their authority doesn't come from the citizens. It comes from God. And ultimately, they won't answer to the citizens for how they use their authority. They might get voted out of the next election, but that's fine. That, that, that's, they're not responsible for that. But it is to God they will answer on the judgment day. They will answer to God for how they use the authority God had given them. And uh, so that's where they need to begin. And then the next stage from there is to ask, oh, wait, if God has given me this authority, I need to know from the God who has given it to me uh, what he's expecting from me. You know, we bring that out, don't we, in the book. We, we look at the whole question. What actually is the civil authority there for? What has God given the civil authority the task to do? And. And, you know, looking at the scriptures, it's very clear the primary responsibility of civil authority is not to make its people rich. Although there's nothing wrong in the scripture with 
for a civil authority to to to, to follow policies that 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 make the people more prosperous that's fine but it's not their primary responsibility nor is it the primary responsibility of civil authority in scripture to make the people healthy nor is it their primary responsibility to to educate the people and this you know we've gone so far wrong with this haven't we we we've come to the idea that it's all about the economy education and health well the civil authority has a role to play in these areas nobody would argue well somebody might argue with that i wouldn't argue with that if somebody said do they have any authority in these areas or any responsibility i think they do because if you if if the people become more wealthy if they're more healthy uh, and if they're better educated then they will be able to fulfill their primary responsibilities and what are they in scripture it's 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 justice and righteousness and the defense of the fatherless and the widow so in so far as the civil authorities pursuit of an education policy a health policy uh, an an economic policy helps them to accomplish these other things i would say they are legitimate for sure um but the primary responsibility is to establish justice and righteousness and truth that means yes christian when you go to the ballot box, you need to be thinking primarily about law and order and righteousness and justice and truth and equity. These are the fundamental things that government is responsible for. And wrapped up in that, as Paul brings out in 1 Timothy 2 so clearly, is freedom for the gospel. So there is to be law and order. There is to be structure and righteousness and justice in society so that there is freedom for the church to go about its God-given business of preaching the gospel and and worshipping the Lord and making known the message of salvation. And all of those things mesh together. So if you think about a society where the government has established justice, righteousness, law and order, is defending the fatherless and the widows, so there's no bribery, there's no injustice, there's no corruption, absolute fairness and truth prevails, the gospel is freely preached. Churches are free to get on with the work of the gospel. Uh, and then that will produce a context in which there is greater prosperity, health and so on. These other things will follow from it. Uh, but they're not where you begin. They're putting the cart before the horse. No. So if you're pursuing the making of money and you're doing it unjustly, <laughs> you're going to do more harm than good. If you're pursuing what you perceive to be making people more healthy but you're doing it in a wicked way in an ungodly way that for example undermines the family then you know and if you're pursuing education and you're actually destroying marriage and family life and 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 the bible's teaching about sexuality and purity then you're obviously you're doing far more harm than good and that's the that's the problem that we face because civil authority has forgotten its calling given by God under the authority of God. You know, it's a very good point that you bring up that in a democratic system, those governments tend to try to please their constituents more. And those constituents may or may not have the same views that the government should have with having justice and mercy and in righteousness. Um, so it's almost as if the democratic process, maybe to some extent, um, has created a worldview in government that is really not biblical. Not that the the democratic process is bad, but it, it seems to to lean towards having its authority in the wrong place, grounded in the wrong place. Yeah, and, and I, I think you know, um, at the risk of sounding a bit overly political, but he's been dead a long time. Uh, Winston Churchill said that d- democracy is the worst form of government, pause, <laughs> except for all the rest. And I think that if we have that understanding, democracy might be the best we're going to get, but it is far from perfect. And it is not the answer to all our problems at all. No. So let's be clear that even with democracy, we have got to balance it out so carefully. Mm -hmm. And nor do we look at dictatorships and say that's all wicked. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You know, Democracy is not the answer. The gospel is the answer. The word of God is the answer. So, 
you know, we need we need more nuance here. And I think in the West, the arrogance and the complacency has really caught us out in the last decade or so, particularly. Hmm. All right. So moving back uh, into more of the discussion of your book, you talk about uh, the use of the sword as it relates to government. And, you know, in the 1689, there, there are some aspects of it that are very much against the Anabaptist movement, which tend to be more pacifist and against Christians serving in civil government. But why is it the duty of the state to use the sword and when can they utilize it properly? Yeah, we, we cover this in the book, don't we? And I think it's a very important question. Um, there was no sword in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the first time we get sword mentioned is when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden and the cherubim are given the flaming sword to prevent them from entering back in. And from that point onwards, you know, when sin has come into the world, uh, the sword is everywhere, um, fomenting violence amongst the wicked, so from Cain onwards, obviously, we've got the use of the sword, Lamech at the end of chapter four. Uh, and then by the time you get to Genesis six, you know, it clearly says violence. Well, to use common parlance on every street corner, basically, that the whole earth was was corrupted with violence and immorality. And uh, so when we get to Genesis chapter nine, uh, it's very clear that God brings in a new a new principle, a principle that wasn't there pre-fall, uh, but now post-flood, um, having wiped the earth clean and giving Noah a fresh start, he says, now, no, you need the sword. And it's very interesting, isn't it? Because as soon as you hear that in Genesis 9, you realize we're not back to Eden here. Noah is a sinner. And that comes out later in Genesis 9, doesn't it? Um, and, uh, and sin is going to spread again. And, and, and so we need something which is going to hold back the spread of sin. And God puts in a number of things. We could say a number of measures, uh, Genesis 9 and 10 and 11, to hinder the spread of evil across the world. It's at this point that nation states come into existence uh, as God divides uh, the people up in Genesis 11. And he does that for the good of humanity so that there'll be no united front against God and no unity of wickedness. So that's one thing that he does. But in chapter nine, God brings in uh, the principle of the sword. And, and he clearly says, doesn't he, that it, if the blood of a man is shed, then by man, his blood uh, should be shed, must be shed. And uh, it seems clear to me as much argument about that text. But it seems clear to me that, that God is establishing a principle there. And then when we get later on uh, into the. Um, into the book of Exodus and we see how God institutes the authorities um, there in the wilderness. Uh, and, we, and we see the, um, the, the system of law and order and justice and righteousness being established. Um, Moses is clearly exercising the use of, in inverted commas, the sword. Now, there is the death penalty, isn't there, there in the wilderness? And, and it, is, it is executed. And, and nowhere in the Bible... Is there even the slightest hint of the injustice of uh, the use of the sword by the civil authorities? Uh, and we show that in the book when we look at Acts of the Apostles and we see Paul's attitude and reaction when he's under authority. He never questions the right of the authority to use the sword. So the authority is to use the sword. Uh, but as we as we see from Romans 13 and it's clear elsewhere, it is to be used for the punishment of the evildoer and for the promotion, the encouragement, uh, the advantage, the propagation of good in society. That, that is how the sword, so it is, it is definitively a, a carrot and stick. Uh, how is it said confessionally? He has armed them, God has armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and for the punishment of evildoers. And I, I think especially in the West, we've kind of seen that start to be pulled back with, at least in the U.S., there's places where the death penalty is, you know, has been uh, abrogated, completely done away with. Um, and it, it's almost as if the sword is seen as a negative thing. If, if a government exerts strong force against evildoers, it's, it's seen as something negative. And we really shouldn't see it that way. It's biblical that in its proper use, 
uh, just wars. And I think our confession talks about that as well. And, and punishing those who take life of others or would threaten the life of those who, uh, who are citizens of that country. Um, so I, again, it's, it, it's just the mindset of the devil, the mindset of the world that's constantly eating away at us. And I think um, us wanting our freedoms and our independence as opposed to submitting to God's um, authority. Yeah. I mean, uh, you mentioned the Anabaptists earlier on, and I don't think this is true of them necessarily but it's definitely true of our modern culture is that we we have believed the lie that we've told ourselves and it's almost like we've told ourselves often enough so we start believing it that humanity is inherently good and that all we need to do is to educate people so education we need to give people money and we need to and we need to establish um you know good healthy systems if people are healthy well-educated and wealthy, then they will be good of necessity. So if you change the externals, you will produce good. Uh, and that is profoundly unbiblical, isn't it? Um, you know, the scripture is so clear. We are shaped in iniquity. We are born in sin. Sin comes from inside us. And if we are not controlled from the outside, then that sin will simply grow and grow and and it will it will get out of control eventually. And if people can't see that in the world at the moment, then they're just blind. They're walking around with their blinkers on. And why is there warfare in the world? And by the way, there always has been. It didn't just start a couple of weeks ago. I mean, war has never ceased. And why will it never cease? Because man is wicked. And if you allow the wicked to build up their armaments and, you know, to put it hyper simplistically, to get more swords than the good, then what are the wicked going to do? Are the wicked going to say, we've got a hundred swords and they've got one? Um, oh, we won't do anything. We'll leave that poor one good person with his one sword on his own. It's it's just ridiculous, it's laughable, isn't it? What are the wicked going to do? They're going to cut their head off the one and they're going to completely dominate and take control. So this idea is 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 biblically, theologically, and experientially utterly naive and it's got to be called out um yeah I, what can you say it's, it's a mess yeah yeah it, there's there's a worldview issue there it, it, and you're right it does go back ultimately to man's sinfulness you you can't you can change the externals of someone's situation which might be helpful in a temporary sense but it's not going to deal with the issues ultimately it doesn't deal with the heart issue Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, In chapter four of the book, you talk about um, what a godly magistrate should look like. And and again, this is our confession deals with the this specific issue of Christians serving in government. Um, Why is it not unbiblical for Christians to pursue public service? Yeah, just before I answer that question, uh, there is just one thing I want to comment on before coming to it. And and it is something I bring out in the book, which is that we mustn't be naive about the ungodly magistrate. We mustn't assume that the ungodly magistrate has some kind of neutral agenda. Well, he's not a Christian, but he's a good guy and and he's going to kind of do good things and we should trust him and all the rest of it. Um, The ungodly magistrate will have an ungodly agenda and we should be on our guard all of the time. Romans one is crystal clear, isn't it? Paul says that the unbeliever is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, consciously keeping the truth down. Now, that is true of the ungodly magistrate. He is suppressing the truth. So while you're suppressing the truth, what's going to happen to the rule of law? What's going to happen to the pursuit of justice and righteousness, what's going to happen to the pursuit of peace and the and the godly use of the sword? It, it's constantly under threat. Now, that doesn't mean to say we go to the other extreme and say the ungodly magistrate is inherently wicked. And we mustn't do anything he says. No, he has his authority from God. But equally, we mustn't be naive and just assume that his motives are all good. Take the whole abortion agenda. People assume Oh, well, they're mistaken, but they're only trying to do the right thing. They're trying to help abuse women and so on. Really? Really? Do we believe that? I don't believe that for a moment. 
So I, I think there's a really important principle there, which brings us to the issue of the godly magistrate. If we hand over the magistracy entirely to the ungodly, what hope is there for the magistracy? What hope is there for our institutions? We, 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 we may as well sign them off, you know, give it a generation and and we've absolutely no hope. So it's absolutely valid for Christians to serve in in the uh, civil magistracy we see examples of it in in the bible don't we uh whether we look at um nehemiah or daniel shadrach meshach and abednego uh jesus with the tax collectors you know he doesn't tell them uh to leave their tax collecting he just tells them to do it fairly um think of john the baptist with the soldiers he doesn't tell them to leave their soldiering he tells them not to abuse their authority. Uh, and then throughout church history, how many godly magistrates have we had? I mean, I wouldn't say that historically uh, the churches have got their theology of the relationship between uh, the magistrate and the church right every time. But nonetheless, that doesn't take away from the fact there have been many godly magistrates who have done much good. You know, you think of a, a man in the UK like Oliver Cromwell or William Wilberforce, after him, whose influence is known across the world uh, for his labours. And, and there are many, many other examples, aren't there? So I think it's important to establish that principle. Amen. And kind of moving to the end here, um, and I think this is a, a key topic that you bring out in your book and um, was encouraging to me to see it. On pages 122 and 123, um, you kind of lay out how the state is supposed to enforce God's law. You say that the state only operates on the second table of the law and not the first. Um, why is this distinction important as we see how the uh, the state is to rule in a land? Yeah. Going back to what we said earlier on, um, Daniel, about the, the, the way in which God has established authority. So... All authority has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from Matthew 28, don't we, as well as many other passages, but it's absolutely crystal clear in Matthew 28, 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's sitting on his throne and he rules over absolutely everyone and everything, every host in heaven, on earth, every dem democracy, every dictatorship, every family, every father, every parent, every husband, every pastor every elder every whoever you want to say who has any kind of authority christ is lord he rules over them and he is is very clear in the scriptures as to what exactly what authority he gives to each of those people in each of those contexts so we talked earlier on about about the parent in the home what authority has Christ given to the parent in the home. That's very clear if you study the scriptures. What authority is Christ given to the husband in the marriage? Very clear in the scriptures. Uh, what authority is Christ given to the pastors in the churches? Very clear in the scripture. And it's not a it's not an easy, uh, straightforward answer that, by the way, because the authority of Christ in the spiritual realm has been given to the churches, we believe in congregationalism. We believe in elder-led congregationalism. But the decisions are made by the gathered church. And that's very clear in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2 and elsewhere, isn't it? That it's the church gathered that receives members and puts members out. Uh, puts members out, 1 Corinthians 5, receives members back, 2 Corinthians 2. It's the church. Now they are led by the elders, of course. But authority resides in the church, in the context of the church. So this issue of authority is not it, it, it's not easily answered. It needs to be carefully studied. And we have that laid out for us in the confession. Now, when it comes to the civil authority, it's it's sphere of authority is extremely limited. And that's so important to say it's extremely limited, just as the authority, for example, of the elders in the church is limited. The elders in the church have no right to tell their members who they can and cannot marry. All they can do is to say, you must marry in the Lord. 
and you know the principles the principles of not marrying a blood relative and so on they just give the commandment of the scripture beyond that no authority they have the authority to tell somebody what career they should go into you 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 make that decision you're free you have christian liberty so the authority of the elders in the church is curtailed distinctly definitely but so is the authority of uh, the civil magistrate his authority is curtailed and it is at the very least it is curtailed by this division between the first and second table of the law so that the, the the civil magistracy never has the right to muscle in to the authority of the church realm and say this is how you must worship god this is when you must worship god this is what you must do when you worship god or equally the negative this is how you must not worship God. This is what you must not do when you worship God. This is uh, when you are not allowed to worship God. The civil authority does not have the power to say that. I think that's incredibly important because that authority is given to the churches. It belongs to Christ and Christ has given it to the churches. If, if you look uh, on in chapter six, uh, 26 of the confession, it's very clear um chapters paragraph seven of, of chapter 26 to each of these churches thus gathered according to his mind declared in his word he has given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on of that order in worship and discipline which he has instituted for them to observe so when it comes to the issue of worship in the church and discipline that's a big word discipline it doesn't just mean receiving people and putting people out it means admonishing people it means directing people it means instructing people concept of discipline is much bigger than just that idea of, of the entry to the church and the exit from the church is very important and those are the boundaries but everything that goes on within in terms of discipline belongs to the church and therefore not to the civil authorities christ has not given that power to the civil authorities now, we deal with this in the book. What about the gray areas? What about the overlaps? Now, there, there, there are gray areas and there are issues of overlap. And each one needs to be thought through carefully. So, for example, if the civil authorities believe that there is a danger to public health from uh, churches gathering for worship, then this is my conviction. They should make ministers of the gospel aware they should call churches attention to that they should give them all the information that they need but ultimately the decision lies with the church because the authorities do not have the right to say you cannot meet or when you meet you cannot sing for example they don't have the right to do that they can advise us they can request us they can inform us they can encourage us um, by all means, but it, it's not their decision. And the moment you then have what we had in the UK, I think what you've had in Canada and in parts of the States uh, during the lockdowns, when you have the criminalization of worshippers, it becomes a criminal offense to leave your house, go to a church building and worship the living God. That is overreach. Period. You know, no further question required. Would it ever be appropriate for the elders of a church to say to the members this Sunday, we're not going to meet because of X, Y, and Z? Of course, but it's their decision, not the decision of the civil authorities. Amen. And that's always the tension. And, and that line is so easily crossed either way where the state tends to bleed into the church or the church tries to bleed into the state. It works the other way, too. Um, we see that with, you know, theonomy and reconstructionism, um, at least here in the U.S., that's what it tends to be. Um, but there's always that fine line we have to walk. Sure. Uh, it's so easy to just to swing to one way or the other. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, when you say it's a fine line, it's an interesting metaphor. It is a line and it is a line that we must draw. Now, OK, it might be fine, but it must be distinct. We must know that we're on the right side of it. Now, we could be wrong, but at least if we've drawn it and we know we're on a particular side of it, then we can repent of that and change. 
Yep. But if you make that line wonderfully broad and you just try and live in it all the time and just say, well, you know, we're not sure where we stand on this. It's all very woolly. That is a complete disaster. We have to know for sure. Is this an area of civil authority or is this an area of church authority? Take, for example, I mentioned this in the book, the, the issue of a pastor who is guilty of um, sexual immorality or of paedophilia, perhaps something like that, child abuse. Well, that is, an, that is a matter for the civil authorities. That's not a matter for the church. He's broken the laws of the land that are there, as we said earlier, to defend the fatherless, the widow, the vulnerable. So here is a man. OK, he might be a pastor. Set that aside. He's a man who is a citizen who has broken the laws of the country. That's a matter for the civil authorities. It's not a matter for the church. So the church should hand him over to the civil authorities, give them all the information that they need. And it's painful and it's hard, but it's got to be done. And when churches try and cover these things up or find another way or defend, it's hopeless. And remember that the, that the cause of the gospel is always bigger than one man anyway. They're, they're sad scenarios, but you know, we've got to work this through and know where we stand. Otherwise, we're going to be in a serious mess. Amen. Amen. So I guess to, to wrap things up. Um, so your new book is it's not quite out yet. When is it expected to be released? Well, I've just got up to date info on this. Um, it's expected to be released on the in the first week of May. OK, week of May. It's going to be available uh, here in the UK and there it's going to be available for for shipping to the states and i think the guys at broken wolf are in discussion uh with a, a distributor in the states as well to make the book available there but it will be available it's nine pounds 99 british pounds whatever that transfers to to us dollars at the moment i think it's about 13 dollars or something um so it will be available uh from the beginning of may uh, so follow the website for, for more details. And that's at brokenwharf.com, correct? Correct, yeah. And we we um, are uh, very thankful for the work the guys are doing there. Uh, they're putting up weekly blog posts and uh, making available all kinds of literature. So uh, we're really thankful for the work they're doing and uh, pray God prosper. Amen. Well, Pastor Oliver, thank you for your work in this area and your work in Christ Church um, and for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Um, again, everyone, check out uh, brokenwharf.com. Uh, like Pastor Oliver said, they do put up blog posts and they have other books available as well. And Pastor Oliver's book will be there in May. So go and check that out, brokenwharf.com. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today. Um, I hope you have a great Lord's Day tomorrow and a great week next week. Take care. Thanks, Daniel. Bye-bye.